Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Feckin' Metal. I am your host, Fergal Trainer. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with Joe Sigler last week, which I presented in its full form, with my questions included and Joe's answers, of course. Uh, for the first time, you got to hear one of the full interviews that I conducted for Ark Sabbath. And this week will be no different. This time I'll be sharing my interview that I conducted with Mick Wall on the 10th of November. For inclusion in Ark Sabbath, his comments were included in episode 9.0 and 10.0. And it was great to have Mick involved. Uh, he added a certain credibility to Ark Sabbath, obviously having worked with the band, written about the band extensively. And being in the room as he so eloquently put it at the time uh, so i am very pleased to share with you the full interview i conducted with mick again if you've been listening along with arc sabbath you will know that or you will recognize some of these comments uh, you'll have heard some of them on the episodes but some of the stuff here as well has never been aired on any episode so i will present this to you in full I keep forgetting to mention, if you'd like to contact me uh, at any point, please do so. On Twitter, it's at feckinmetalcast. Via email, it's feckinmetal at gmail.com. And I'm still using the Feckin' Checkin' Podcast Network Facebook page, so if you want to contact me on Facebook, you can do so there. Again, this is No Frills, unedited. This is me speaking to Mick Wall on the 10th of November. I'm on the uh, coffee there today, actually. Oh, right now you're frozen. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Hi, sorry, you were you were frozen on me there for a good while. Well, I, what I've done is I've now stuck it onto uh, the Wi-Fi through my phone. Okay. So that sometimes works better, um, mainly because I'm on a farm. And the old farmer has this shit Wi-Fi. Mm. Uh, we've been here six years, and about a year ago, he tried to. He's got a new thing going on, and uh, would we like to be connected? I was like, absolutely. Mm. The guys came round and did all this stuff, and at the end of it, they were like, "Yes." The guy said to me, "It's a bit expensive, though, isn't it? Fifty-five quid a month." I went, "What?" <laughs> No, 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 fuck all that. Tell him to fuck off. I'm going back to the ship when I had before, you know. So yeah. well, it I, could be a lot of factors. Sure. Uh, it's quite a little uh, dainty mug you've got there. Well, I'm a classy guy, you know. <laughs> uh, all right, so we're going to talk a bit about Black Yeah, Sabbath. come on. Go on then, let's get going. All right. Um, I haven't got all day for you, my friend. <laughs> Jesus, after I've got, all. To, I've got work for you to do. Come on, hurry up. <laughs> After all the uh, the errors spent slaving over um, hours, A-cast. hours, <laughs> ten minutes, man, <laughs> drunk on the fucking whiskey. That's what I got. Okay, all right. Well, hang on, let's see your cup then. Come on, let's have a cup. Look here, look. What's this? It's an Iron Maiden cup. What's that? A child's <laughs> thing with a lid on it. Uh, yeah. Well, I see. I need the I need the larger quantity of coffee. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So um, I'm talking about Black Sabbath. I'm doing a series at the moment, which I've called Arc Sabbath. It's called that because it's like a series arc within my podcast. Um, and I'm up to the point of the 1990s where uh, Tony Martin is in the band and stuff. Um, I, I'm referencing your book a lot. Um, it's an excellent book, Symptom of the Universe. Oh, are you? Are you? You're referencing it, are you? I am. Yeah. 
I'll be I'll be invoicing you for your referencing. I, I Don't you so- worry, my friend. I've sold you at least one copy of that book based on this podcast. Oh well, fucking so. hell. That must be why I feel rich. <laughs> and uh basically I know you were you were involved with Black Sabbath back in the in the nineteen eighties. Um I think it started around back in the Heaven and Hell era with heavy publicity, is that right? Yeah. I mean I'd I'd really liked uh let me see, I was uh I was about 12 when I heard the single Paranoid at a school disco and uh, I'd never heard anything like it. It didn't really sound like music. It was it was like the theme tune to Doctor Who or something. It was just this strange sound, you know. Um, <clears throat> used to have some of their albums. And then by early, early 1980, I'm 21, working at Heavy Publicity, and they'd done the publicity for Black Sabbath, excuse me, in the UK, in the Aussie years. Yeah. And um, so now they'd sacked Aussie, but that big whole saga, and Dio comes in. They've done the album with Martin Birch, who would go on to, uh, I think, literally almost straight after Sabbath, do the first, did you do the first Maiden album? It was probably the second the Second album. one, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I went out to Paris in February. And that's where I first met the Dio lineup um, and first met Black Sabbath. Um, yeah, I forgot your question. What was it? <laughs> I was just asking how you first initially got involved in them. So, that, yeah, with them. So that's kind of answered that. But um, what I wanted to know is, like, you've, you've written a bit about it, but not in, in a huge level of detail. Like, what, what exactly, like, is your job if you're doing PR for a band? Are you at their beck and call? Is it changing on the fly? Is it just kind of like today you're doing this, tomorrow you're doing something completely different? How how does how does the work get here? Um, I I can't speak for what it's like these days, but back then and for many years to come, while while bands were still selling records and making a shit ton of money, and in particular when the music press still mattered, which it, it really doesn't anymore. Um, uh, the whole idea was was that anybody that worked for a band, whatever your job. Uh, it was like going to war. You know, if you had that uniform, uh, you would come to the assistant assistance of your comrade if you were needed. But my job, publicity in those days, it was very straightforward. <coughs> but you have to remember a world where there's literally three TV channels. Yeah. Uh, national TV. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, maybe even probably minus two or something. We had two. Yeah, we had two yeah. for a long time. Yeah. We had three. And uh, for a while, and uh, uh, and one national radio station, music station, which was Radio One, <clears throat> and TV and radio uh, simply didn't play Black Sabbath or you know Deep Purple. Or, I mean, they would play Thin Lizzy, who did have some great singles. Mm. Uh, uh, but by and large, forget it, you know. Um, but concurrent to that, and partly, you know, be- because of that. Uh, there were four music paper weeklies in the UK, Sounds, Enemy, Melody Maker and Record Mirror. And because no, in the case of, say, Sabbath, no one realistically expected Neon Nights to be played on Radio 1 as a hot new single of the week. You know, um, At the same time, by 1980, any evening music shows, we were into skinny ties and... Uh, getting your hair cut and oh my god you're not wearing flares are you you know 
And so the chances of getting Sabbath on the radio, even in the evenings, would be restricted to, you know, the specialist shows. You know, Alan Fluff Freeman was the big one on Radio 1 on a Saturday afternoon. And then when he went to Capital Radio, Tommy Vance came in. Tommy had been presenting reggae music shows for Radio London. And he came in and his Friday rock show and so on and so forth. So the only way you could get major exposure exposure for a group like Sabbath and almost every album-oriented band was through the music press. Mm. So you would hire a, a press agent, a publicity agent, a press representative, a PR. And so the, the, the job was twofold. Um, number one, you've got to get them in the music press. Not just here's a little story that we've got a record coming out. Get them on the cover of the magazine. Get news stories, letting them know it was coming. Get news stories, printing the details. You know, other next issue tour dates, next issue front cover interview. One after that, live reviews, and then the merry-go-round starts again. Get another feature. You just keep 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 going. And in Britain, um, funnily enough, the sort of the one of the really important things to do as a PR in those days was get them into the regional papers because, because of punk, NME weren't going to touch Sabbath with a barge drop. They weren't even going to do a piece and say they were shit. You know, mm. they didn't matter. Yeah, that's even worse. <laughs> uh, Melody Maker, yes, but they would do Sabbath, Zeppelin, Queen, you know, the really the big beasts. Now, they weren't going to do Iron Maiden or Def Leppard or anything. Sound, same thing, Black Sabbath, that's a cover. Um, we got, I got them on the cover of Record Mirror, which was astonishing because that was a pop magazine. Um, but somehow we fucking did it. I don't know how. Um, and uh, so your job is to literally just get, get them in. You're a press agent. You get them in the press. And uh, you do that through a combo. It's not enough just to go, oh, here's a new record. And then they go, oh, shit, isn't it? Oh, the guy said it was shit. Sorry, fellas. You know, mm. you have to persuade the guy that it's not shit uh, and that it would be in his interests to understand just how not shit it is. <laughs> and that would be, uh, you know, we, well, let's go and see the band in New York. Yeah. Oh, New York. Oh, yeah, but you don't like the album. Do you? Oh, no, no, no. I've been playing it again recently. <laughs> It's one of the, it's a grower. It's, oh, right, right, right. Um, uh, there were many, many ways. I can't, I may, I've told you so many stories. I may have told you these before, so stop me if I have. But I mean, I remember there was one time, to give you an example, uh, we were doing the PR for a group called The Flies. And this is like in 79. And The Flies had had one single. Fuck knows what it was called. All these bands had one single mm. and then sort of lived off the fumes of it. It wasn't like a single you'd see them do on top of the pops. It wasn't a hit. It just got a good review in a music paper and got a feature cover, you know. Mm. We're sort of two years on from that. No, no one gave a shit anymore. But we were still being paid to do something. And so I called up a friend of mine on Record Mirror. You know, I was like 21. He's about the same age. And I said, he was from Edinburgh. And I said, uh, yeah, fancy a drink? Yeah, 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 where should we go? I said, I named a place. That's in Edinburgh. I said, yeah, what about it? This is like three in the afternoon. But how would we get there? So I'm sending a bike over right now with a helmet. 
you're going to get on the bike, put the helmet on, and I'm going to meet you at Heathrow. Mm. We're going to get the shuttle to Edinburgh. Wow, man, that's amazing. Man. There's just one thing. <laughs> on at Barbarella's, whoever the fuck the place was tonight, is the flies. Oh, no, not the flies. They're fucking shit. They're the reason mm. I can afford to get us there. Oh, what do you need? It's a live review. Just don't say their shit. A live review. That's it. Mm. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So they got a great live review. And uh, and me and the journalist uh, were, you know, even bigger buds than we were 24 hours before. You know. So that's what a press agent did in those days. These days, they're fucking useless. They send a fucking email. Yeah. Oh, here's a link for you to stream. Oh, fuck off, mate. I, I, in my days, records. And we would sellotape grams of speed on the inside. You know, when you pull the record yeah, out in yeah. the bag, sellotape right there. Mm. Hope, hope you enjoy the record. <laughs> <laughs> it's a grower. <laughs> uh, ask me if it worked. Did it work? <laughs> Always. Never failed. Ever, ever, ever. And radio DJs were even more uh, fated. Mm. Uh, promo guys for radio. And again, radio, because it's very hard to get on TV, but you could get on the specialist shows or regional shows, you know, Bob's yeah. banging metal fucking show on Radio Wolverhampton or something, whatever it was. Yeah. You know. uh, th this is probably going to sound quite naive, but like I remember kind of some of these revelations in your in your books and, I was looking at it going, Jesus, the whole thing is so corrupt. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, of course it is. Yeah. You haven't, you haven't learned. Hang on, I'm just, I'm on the other screen. You're trying to send something. Let me just do that. And I can. Right. Of course it is. Mm. What, what, did you imagine for one minute that the world of Aussie and Pagey and Phil Linett, I also did PR for Rory Gallagher. Right. Um, I remember... It's the same era, 79. And I remember we went to a show in Germany. He was doing, he's really big in Germany. He was doing a show in Germany with Frankie Miller opening for him. I don't know if you know who Frankie Miller is, but Frankie Miller, yeah, no, no. don't know. From Glasgow. <laughs> right. From Glasgow. Okay. And this really motherfucker. Um, wonderful voice in that sort of Rod Stewart, Paul Rogers vein. Uh, he never, he had a couple of singles. He had a song called Darling, which was a big hit. Darling. Mm. Uh, Brian Robertson, when he uh, cut his hand in a fight at the Speakeasy in London on the eve of a Thin Lizzy American tour, which then had to be cancelled, it was Frankie Miller's face he was protecting. Someone was trying to bottle him. Oh, okay. Two Glaswegians on a night out. One of... Someone wants to bottle one of them and the other one his hand in the way. Um, so anyway, um, it's the next day and we're coming back and Donald is Rory's brother and manager. And as we're going through Heathrow, and he got him out, it's a, it really, people, I know people say it, but it's true, it was a different world. So there's none of this post 9-11 paranoia. You know, people are falling over drunk everywhere, smoking and, you know, laughing. And and uh, we're walking through Heathrow and he said, oh, would you mind helping me carry a few duty-free bags? Oh, 
So we get through the other side and he goes, thanks. And he shows me. And inside both bags, there's just stacks and stacks of cash. Right. right. Uh, from the gig. Yeah. From the gig. And, of course, I thought that was hilarious at the time. It wasn't until later I thought, what if I'd got stopped? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Donald said, I don't know anything about it. The boy's out of control, you know. Um, so was the cash legit? Like, it was just the takings from the show? Just the takings from the show, but it was all cash in those days. Very few credit cards. Kids yeah. at shows didn't have cards. Right. Uh, I mean, that cash thing, I remember being at Donington in 88, was it 88 uh, or 90 and uh, 90 and uh, I was doing a piece for Radio 1 on the festival and one strand of that was uh, the merch and I remember walking around the backstage this is about five in the afternoon and as I walked into the area where all the merch people were they had these huge plastic bin liners you know that clump to your chest mm. and they had a, a particularly short roadie a uh, guy that worked for the crew member. And they had lift two guys had lifted him up and they were using him as like a battering ram on the bins to, to stuff all the cash, all the fucking cash Jesus in it. Cause, well, because you're kind of at Donington and you're 15, 20, yeah. 25 in 1990, you turn up with pockets full of cash. Of course, yeah, of course. And um, so cash was case. So this is 79. I mean, there's no, you know, you come home with the cash or you put it in a German bank and declare it for tax. And mm. ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, carry this for me, will you make? Oh, yeah. And back to when you were um, doing PR for Black Sabbath. So um, this is around the time Don Arden bowed out. Uh, I think he famously said something like, we can't have a midget singing for Black Sabbath. But did, yeah. you did you have any dealings with him around that time or was he gone by the time you got there? No, no, no. He was very much on the scene. Um, but he really thought they had no chance whatsoever without Ozzy. And he had Ozzy. Um, weirdly enough, cut to just over 20 years later, and I ghosted Don's memoirs. Yeah. And I got to spend a lot of time with him where he would tell me all about midgets and gangsters. And he was fantastic. I mean, you know, I, you know, I love a story. He was yeah. amazing. But back in the day in heaven and hell they so sabbath were taken over for management by a guy called sandy perlman mm. who also managed blue oyster cult but was like um they were his band you know he produced their records he co-wrote material and uh, and that's why the heaven and hell tour once it kicked off in america in 1980 it was the black and blue tour it was black sabbath and blue oyster cult mm. And in certain places, blue, most places, Blue Oyster Cult, it was a co-headline, hmm. but Blue Oyster Cult would come on first and then Sabbath, and then certain shows, Sabbath would come on first. They would have an equal amount of stage time, but of course, Perception is always the last band on is the yeah. headliner. Um, yeah, so, and Sandy was completely different to Don. He was into music. Um, <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yeah, quite a, quite a, quite a, chasm there between the two interests yeah yeah and um did you like did you have any dealings with don personally yourself uh, i know he was managing ozzy at the time but um was there any kind of i don't know uh, communication between the two camps no no i mean as i say i did get to know don as the years went by mm. 
No, no, no. In fact, the, the opposite, the two camps were really, they didn't cross. There was no Venn diagram. Yes. Or there was, but not by now. It was like magnets that you couldn't push together. Right. And you were either in one camp or the other. This wasn't made explicit to me at all. Um, it was only, it only became apparent as time went on because um, I met them in Paris in February 1980. Uh, I think the album came out in like May, April, May. And the European tour started in Germany in April, got to the UK in, I'm going to say, May, June. And they did like five nights at the Hammersmith Odeon in London. Yeah. And I, I did all of that. Um, and then come October that year, the, the American tour had started in July, August, something like that. And by the early October, they were doing Madison Square Garden in New York. And by that time, uh, another long story, which I won't tell, but heavy publicity had gone. I was actually washing dishes for £10 a night in a, in a posh burger joint. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I got a phone. No, you have to have no mobiles. It's all pay phones and someone's phone. Mm -hmm. There's a phone call for you. I'm in the kitchen, literally up to my shoulders in suds, <laughs> uh, sucking on white bottles of white wine. And um, I went upstairs to the phone, and it was uh, their tour manager, Paul Clark, calling from wherever they were in America. We want you to come to fucking New York. Bring that cunt Mikowski with you. Get fucking some wanker from America. I'm like, uh, when? Next week. Oh, fuck me. Mm. Um, I can't remember the actuality, but uh, I had no money and I was told, don't worry, because the minute you get into New York, Paul will give you um, a month's, whatever Sabbath paid the company every month. Yeah. They were going to give that to me in cash. Right. <laughs> and, um, and I literally, Pete Mikowski, who died last week, I was 22, he was 24, and uh, I took him with me. And we met up with, uh, he was doing a cover for Sound magazine. And we met up in York with a guy called Steve Gett, who was also from England, but was now living in New York. And he was doing a big piece for Melody Maker. And I um, remember we got to the hotel, was, Sabbath was staying at the Waldorf Astoria, and uh, which is like, the New York equivalent of the Savoy or the Dorchester or mm. something, the Georges Sank. And, um, and a limo picked us up. I had a five pound note in my pocket. And when we got there, I, I didn't have a card or nothing. And, uh, and literally the tour manager called me up to, it was a Friday, called me up to his suite. And I went up there and a long story short, he gave me the month's money in cash in an envelope. I think it was about uh, 500 quid or something. But the dollar rate in those days was something like, it was literally like $2.6 per pound. Jesus, okay. <clears throat> so I ended up with um, whatever that fucking was. Uh, Not one and a half grand maybe or something like that. Yeah, yeah, in dollars. In dollars, yeah. yeah. Um, we were booked into the hotel for two nights. They did Madison Square the following night. And then uh, me and Pete, uh, decided to stay on for a couple of weeks. That's another story. Um, but um, 
by this point, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I ended up dishwashing was Sabbath had put me off working in the music business. Mm. <clears throat> I've been working with Lizzie and uh, Dire Straits and Journey and uh, The Damned and various people. And it was all a laugh, you know. Um, Lemmy and mm. Hawkman and Girls School, it was all a laugh. And then Sabbath, they were just the most miserable motherfucker I'd ever met in my life. And I was a bit scared of them, and it just wasn't fun. Have you seen that program, Succession? No, I haven't. No. People oh, have suggested it to me now. Oh, you've got to check it out. Well, it's a shame, because I would say I was like Cousin Greg. Right. And they were like the Roy family. Shakespearean in their darkness. And, and what, like, I've heard you say this before, but like, why do you think they were so miserable? A combination of coming from the Midlands, where their braying donkey accents just sort of lend a certain gloomy aspect to their character, <laughs> along with the, the, the rain and the maudlin surroundings. Right. You know. uh, it's a bit of a shithole. And, uh, and the fact that my Black Sabbath book, you know, the, the, I remember the opening words of my Black Sabbath book, they were scum and they knew yeah. it. And that's, that's the truth. You know, they, I mean, also used to say to me, um, you know, we didn't have a fucking clue. We didn't know what we were doing. And their first album went straight into the UK charts. I think they only played like one club show in London. And the music press just regarded them as, as simpletons, you know, like not worth our trouble. Mm. Um, but they just took off like a rocket. The first album even got in the charts in America. Mm. I mean, it just took off and it had nothing to do with the music business in the UK or the US and um, and I think it kind of went both ways so they never saw the value really in in hanging out with you know music journalists in London uh, or the Rolling Stone people in America you know it just just they didn't give a fuck. Mm. Um, I mean, Ozzy was barely literate, so he didn't even read the music papers. There wasn't any telly, and they were huge. Um, so they just didn't really give a fuck. And they never moved to London. I mean, Ozzy did eventually, years later, but they all still live where they came from. Yeah. Uh, Giza once said to me, uh, we knew we'd made it. This is after the second album goes to number one in the UK. He goes, we knew we'd made it when we turned up one night in the dressing room and there was an ounce of hash in there for all of us, mm. like one each. Yeah. Like, we've made it. Yeah. Um, so it was just a combo of things. And their music was so kind of brutal and, and defiantly anti-intellectual. That's how it was kind of seen. Mm. Uh, and in America, once you got to America, this was the age of quaaludes and what these days they call stoners. Back then it was like the walking dead, mm. you know. Um, I remember being told about shows in the mid-70s where at the end of the night certain special roadies have to go out with big, wide special brooms to sweep up all the needles and broken bottles mm. and bodies <laughs> and blood, you know. This fucking dark, dark, dark shit, you know, yeah. out in Cincinnati that night, so. And then when Dio came in, um, like Ozzy had left, been fired, come back, left again, whatever, um, did like 
that was obviously a huge risk by the band. Did you think it was a wise choice at the time? Do you remember what you thought about it at the no, time? No, no, no. Stupid, insane, made absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever. A pitiful, desperate act. Last act by a bunch of dying men clinging to any straw, you know. Um, guess who was wrong? Um, Heaven and Hell, the album, I mean, it was their best seller for years, probably since Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath in 73. And as by an accident of timing, you know, the fact that Dio had joined, Dio who took his stuff very, very, very seriously. Mm. Well, the Iomi and the band took their music seriously. Obviously, Ozzy didn't take anything seriously. Yeah. Um, and you could, you know, you could... You could feel that in his performance and his vocals. It, it wasn't like a Robert Plant singer. You know, it was a, a, a much more of a vocalist than a singer. Whereas Ronnie was the full, the full lion's roar of a vocal. And um, and I think at that moment, 1980, you've got this kind of next generation of rock fans coming along, for whom Ozzy and Sabbath are, are kind of old school. Uh, you know the. Um, you know, the old stuff. And uh, you've got Priest, Maiden, all this stuff happening, ACDC. And Sabbath somehow, just with Dio, were able to kind of... It wasn't intentional. Just so happened that moment was good for that. And so Heaven and Hell, to this day, I, I know many, many people of exactly that generation that for whom Heaven and Hell is by far the best Black Sabbath album ever. Mm. Um, and they do not understand at all someone like me going, uh, that was a great album, but if you want a proper, if you want an actual Sabbath album, you've got to go back to the early ones with all. Right. Well, that, that's an interesting point you're saying. So, like, plenty of people only consider the Aussie stuff proper. Um, Dio was maybe too much for them. But then we had a lot of different singers coming in. We had uh, Ian Gillen then, who did an album. Um, we had Glenn Hughes from... Uh, also from Deep Purple, who did one album as well, although it was supposed to be a, um, a solo al- album by Tony Martin. But um, at the time, you're obviously in Kerrang! At the time. Solo album with Tony Iommi. Yeah. Professor Trainer. What did I say there? You said Tony, you said Tony Martin. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's too many. Too, too many this is your favourite singer. Yeah, you should, you should let me know. Fergal confess that the cat was his favourite Sabbath singer, oh. but that he never tells anyone because of you can't take the shame. We'll, we'll get to the cat in a second. Don't worry. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but oh, yeah. I'm just thinking during this time in the 80s, you would have been, well, I think you probably would have been at Kerrang for some of it. But like, what was the general consensus amongst the rock press at the time when Sabbath were kind of going through a singer per album uh, almost? Well, Kerrang didn't exist when Ozzy was in the band. Uh, another reason, partly why, you know, the Dio era was so, is so fondly looked on at the time. Rainbow, I think there are early issues of Kerrang. I think Rainbow Rising was voted the, the greatest heavy metal album of all time or something, you know. Mm. So for that singer to join Sabbath, it, it was a completely different perspective. It really did. Uh, it was monster. Um, Ozzy wasn't coming back. Ozzy was a joke. That was the consensus. Um, but after Dio, Ian Gillen, that was the first sign of uh, they're taking the piss now, mm. you know. Um, they're doing smoke on the water in the encore. Yeah. 
uh, and Gillen, Gillen who, who has always struggled to learn his own lyrics, let alone anybody else's, with that big book on the stage, he's turning the fuck, no, no um, prompts in those days. He's having, actually turning pages on the stage, but they're billowing so much dry ice he can't fucking see. So he's down on his knees, you know, I mean, whole thing was farcical. Yeah. And they've got ELO's drummer. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I remember there being a joke at the time that um, they'd worked out some new encores for America. It was going to be uh, uh, Paranoid, Smoke on the Water, and Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's cabaret at that stage, really. Apparently, they did rehearse it. Right. They did rehearse it, but um, Geezer and Tony couldn't stop laughing, so uh, that never came to anything. Did you ever read the classic Kerrang! story? And this is uh, after Gillen, after Glenn Hughes. Um, Ray Gillen must have come in because he replaced Glenn Hughes on the tour, didn't he? And yes, he did, yeah. So I think there was a little period there where Ray Gillen's now gone and it's before the cat. And uh, and they've got a few of these David Donato yeah. and weird people. Circling. And Kerrang! did a, a story, uh, a world exclusive, saying that uh, Tom Jones <laughs> had joined the band and was going to be, was officially the new Black Sabbath singer. Yeah. And and we, we wrote this whole, John Houghton wrote it actually, this whole story about how they'd done an album called The Minor Tour, like, like yeah. Welsh Miners, yeah. The Minor Tour, and that the stage show would be all dark, and we drew it and everything on the page, mm. you know, and the lighting would come from roadies stretched out on the gantry with those coal miners' helmets on, swinging their heads mm. like this. And, uh, and we had a set list. And it was uh, Warpix, Iron Man. It's not unusual. <laughs> Paranoid and the ultimate encore, Delilah. You know. yeah. And um, and we ran it and as an April Fool's. It so turned out, the magazine, I think, used to come out every two weeks in those days. And it so happened this issue was coming out on April the 1st. And people took it seriously. Mm. Uh, the BBC rang up, wanted to do a news item on it. They called Tom Jones's people for a comment. Jones's camp completely deny, you know. And uh, and Iomi and that are like, I don't know what the fuck to do. But uh, Sharon told me that Ozzy read the story sitting by the pool in LA mm. and that he laughed so hard he fell off the chair and nearly into the pool. <laughs> And um, but I tell that story a because it's funny, but also because it highlights just what a joke they were. You said what was the general feeling? A fucking joke. Mm. That was the general feeling. Um, and uh, and this was at a time when you know Gillen's now back with Deep Purple, which was always his evil plan. Um, and they're getting front covers and great coverage. Mm. But also Dio now has his own band, which his first couple of albums are multi-plat. He's huge. Um, and Ozzy is bigger than all of them put together. You know, it was like even Tom Jones was bigger than Black Sabbath at that point in America, you know. Um, 
it, it they just had become a joke and it got worse and worse and worse mm. um so we moved on um to now like it's 1987 and tony the cat martin has joined the band um did you still cover Black Sabbath around these albums? Do you remember writing anything about these or going to see the band live? No, no, I was, I was in, I, I was in the Aussie camp by right. then, so I was firmly one of Sharon's. You know, Game of Thrones. Yes. And um, what was his name? Who had the little birds? You know, the bald-headed guy. For uh, Lord Varus or something, he, or no? Maybe, yeah. He was a unit. Yeah, Varus. I think his name was. Yeah, and he was the spy, mm. and he had the little birds, which were yes. his yeah, yeah. fucking informers. I was one of Sharon's little birds. Right. So, um, so uh, I mean, I was at Live Aid with Sabbath, you know, the original lineup in '85. Mm. I knew all. How could I? Not, I'd already. I knew them before I knew Aussie. Mm. But uh, no, by then I'm completely in Sharon's pocket because, um, in fairness to Aussie, he was doing the interesting stuff. And Sabbath truly were a fucking joke. It was only when Tony Martin and the cat, <laughs> and the cat crept in, that uh, they started to claw back yeah. some of their credibility. You're enjoying this, sir. And, and and really started to purr again. Um, Tails high in the air. <laughs> so uh, we had a bit of we had an album with him, and then and then Ronnie James Dio came back again in the nineties. Are you still in the... Um... I think there's a couple of albums. Was there, was there only one with the Sorry, cat? yeah, there was... Um... Before... Oh, yeah, and then they... There was, sorry, there was the Eternal Idol, and then we had Headless Cross and Tear, and then we had the Dehumanizer album with Ronnie James Dio, uh, who... Yeah. It was like, it was the big return, it was yeah. a big reunion. Again, what, like, were you in the Sharon camp still back around 1992? Uh, were you one of her birds still at that point? Well, um, I had also been in the Dio camp. And that's the thing. Yeah. Once Dio was out of Sabbath, these things just overlap, overlap, overlap. So once Dio's out of Sabbath, his wife, Wendy, who is now his manager, uh, I wouldn't say modelled herself on Sharon, but Sharon had set a precedent as being a credible woman manager in a very, very, very male-dominated world, and particularly heavy metal in America in the 80s. Wendy had kind of followed that path to a degree. And so far from uh, being on the outs, you know, Wendy and Sharon knew each other. Uh, Ronnie and Ozzy were very civil um, because they were both very successful at that point. Mm. And, um, but Sabbath weren't. So, so poor old Iomi was the only one left. I mean, Giza's gone, everyone's gone. And, um, uh yeah no i i was doing lots of stuff with dio lots of stuff with aussie i was doing fuck all with iomi because they weren't hot there was nothing happening i mean it really just looked desperate and sad tony martin definitely brought some cred back though because he had a really good voice he wasn't just some wanker from another band looking for a payday mm. um and the fact that he was also from the Midlands, all these little things ticked, mar little margins of credibility came back. And they, and they made some good records. Yeah. Um, certainly some good tracks. Um, yeah. But it was tough. I mean, he, he was good. But by the time you've got Cozy Powell on the drums and Neil Murray on bass and 
I'm going to say Don Airy on keyboards because he must have been there somewhere. <laughs> he was at one point. Probably Elton John in the wings, you know. Yeah. And it just, it just, you know, it just didn't have it. It just didn't have it. It wasn't mm. happening. Yeah, um, you were quite, you were quite unkind to a headless cross in your book, uh, Syndrome of the Universe, especially one of the videos where you basically um, accused Tony Iommi of hogging the limelight uh, in the video. I can't remember was it? it could have been when that calls or something. Uh, and and Tony Martin is kind of standing to the side. He doesn't come into it for a minute, and all of his his moves are kind of stolen from from rock stars of years gone by. Um, did you feel that he maybe had a find it found it difficult to? have a personality in that band which was kind of full of, of big personalities already or had had lots of them in it yeah definitely uh so did glenn hughes so did uh ray gillen and anybody else that had a go other than dio um but you have to remember back in the when sabbath first became stars in uh, 1970 uh right up till the very end with that with ozzy if you went to see them live, Iomi always stood in the middle. You know, like, as you're looking at me now, drums back here, bassist here, guitarist here, singer in the middle. Sabbath were drummer, geezer, Tony, mm. over here, Ozzy. Yeah. Always Tony's band, always. I mean, they used to call him Darth Vader, you know. If you yeah. And it really suited him at the time. Um, he's more of a pussycat now, but not back then. And uh, so Tony was always the star of the show. But by the time you get the cat, um, you're just you're in a situation where the only reason they're still being given money to make records or tour is because Tony Iommi's in the band. Because yeah. there are no other Black Sabbath members in the band. Uh, it's it's really uh, stretching it to still call it Black Sabbath, but you've got Iommi. It's like, you know, when Guns N' Roses had Axel and just a load of other fucking people that you'd never mm. heard of, you know. This is Iommi with a load of other people that you'd heard really a lot about already, apart from the cat. Um, and uh, so, you know, you bet your ass he was in the videos. You bet your ass he was on the covers and that. Because... He was the moneymaker. You know, if they put Tony front and centre, you may as well call the band, band something different because no one would know who the fuck he is or what's going on. Mm. You know, you, you had two seconds to get someone's attention. Yeah. Uh, put That's why I am, you said. Sure. So you at least know it's Black Sabbath. Okay. And I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping around a bit chronologically, but back when they got back together with Ronnie James Dio for Dehumanizer. They did a tour um, and famously Dio didn't want to support Ozzy as Black Sabbath uh, on his kind of farewell shows that they were, as they were called at the time and left. And, and that was it for a very long time between them. Um, people have speculated that it was kind of Sharon Osbourne uh, being a puppet master, kind of trying to take back Black Sabbath maybe because they knew they were going to do a reunion with the original four at the end of Ozzy's show. Uh, do you think that's what happened there, or was Dio being a bit too sensitive? No, it's exactly what happened. You know, what is Sharon Osbourne if not a puppet master? Hmm. What's her job if it's not to be puppet master? She doesn't fucking play keyboards. You know? <laughs> this is true, yeah. She doesn't write any fucking songs. You know, she keeps the fucking lunatic, keeps loony tunes in line. And make sure that everything's going along in a multi-million dollar direction. Mm. Iomi 
And Sharon told me this story herself. I'm going to say this is in like 94, mm. before the debacle at yeah. uh, Costa Mesa. Um, I only had married this model in America called Melinda. Uh, Melinda from Modesta. Mm. And uh, he married her on the tour I did, the Heaven and Hell tour in LA at the Sunset Marquee. In, a, in, a, in his suite at the Sunset Marquee, they'd hired a justice of the peace to come in and marry them. No one else in the room. Mm. And when the justice of the peace said, do you have a witness? Tony pointed at a giant teddy bear in the corner of the room. And he went, there's your fucking witness. Right? <laughs> fucking get on with it. Mm. So, so this same classy girl, Melinda, um, they divorced, you know. I think they actually have a child, in fairness, maybe two, who knows. Um, and uh, divorced, but Iomi didn't pay alimony. Mm. But then when, uh, well, it must have been the Sabbath, the Dio Sabbath, came through, El, it wasn't El Paso, but you know, came through somewhere near the border. Um, Iomi was arrested, mm. literally thrown into jail. At this point, his credit cards weren't working and he had no money. And Sharon stepped in and offered to send a private plane, pay the bail, pay everybody off uh, and give him a big fucking bag of cash, make it all go away. But first, he'd need to sign a bit of paper. Mm. And on that paper were the rights to the Black Sabbath name. So in order to literally get out of his El Paso fucking jailhouse, mm. uh, he signs a bit of paper, car turns up, takes him to the private jet, takes him back to L.A., and now his ass belongs to Sharon. Well, I, I'm very glad you brought this up because I remember reading this in the book and I have it noted. And um, during this series, I was I was talking to lots of different people and there's a, there's a website called black-sabbath.com run by Joe Sigler, his name is. He's been running it since ninety five. Uh, like the biggest Black Sabbath fan site on the on the internet, and um, I asked him about this, and he he disputed that. Uh, he said that never happened, uh, according to him. Does he does he know Sharon? Well, he does know Tony, Bill, and Geezer because he runs their personal websites for them. Ah, um, well, they're not going to fucking admit to that, are they? Well, then there's another point as well that I'd like to make, which kind of refutes it. That years down the line. Iomi and Osborne were suing each other, or Ozzy Osborne was suing Tony Iomi to the rights to the name Black Sabbath. But if Sharon already owned it, why would he have had to have done that? It was around 2010. Well, it could be that uh, I don't know anything about that. It's the first I've ever heard of that. Okay. But I'm telling you right now, why would Iomi admit to that? His, his autobiography is the biggest pile of shit I've ever read in my life. It's full of bullshit. Um, Sharon and I knew each other very well. And she mm. told me many, 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 many things mm. that never came out. Mm. Um, but you're Tony Iommi, and people are cutting your credit cards in half when you mm. go to pay for a meal in a restaurant. Yeah. You haven't paid daddy money for years on end to your kid. Mm. And um, your career is going nowhere fast. Yeah. Who who do you really think won that battle? You should bring Don Arden's memoir. You should see you should see the stuff Sharon has done to Ozzy. Right. Yeah. These are these are these are people that don't fuck around. 
that do set up enormous scenarios for exactly this sort of thing to happen. Yeah, and if yeah. you honestly think that that didn't happen, well, I just say good luck, put the T-shirt on, and may God go with you. I'll see you at the backstage door waiting for an autograph. Okay? I just Because this guy has close links to band members, I... And and the website is so meticulously researched; it's ridiculous. Like it's really, really well put together. Um, so I gave it and some credibility. The music, the music. Every, every single person who's ever been in the band, the timeline, uh, all of that. Right. Has he ever snorted coke with Iomi? I probably, probably not. No. Well then, my dear friend, he wasn't in the room, was he? No. Okay. Look, I just thought I'd ask you. Uh, um, and and well, you've answered. Uh, but there's the other thing now where um, Iomi is releasing uh, Black Sabbath reissues like Heaven and Hell and um, the Mob Rules and stuff, and he promotes them on his own private social media. But the actual Black Sabbath social media never mentions those albums, mm. um, which has led. Uh, it was led Joe anyway to speculate that he thinks there's two legal entities, like what happened with Pink Floyd. There's actually two legal Pink Floyds now. One that's all to do with Roger Waters, and then one that's the stuff that isn't Roger Waters. Uh, why? Why do you think they changed their name to Heaven and Hell? Well, at, at the time, I assumed it was for that very reason because they didn't own the rights to the name. But it was always denied in the press. And again, I'm sure you would say, "Well, Iommi was just lying to save face." Um, but yeah, he was lying. Yeah. So that's, I mean, they, they, the whole idea was it was going to be called Black Sabbath. Right. You know, the compilation was Black Sabbath, the Dio years. Yes, it was, yeah. And then, and then Sharon put the legal gun to their head, mm. took the horse's head in the bed and went, no. Yeah. And they went, all right then, and changed it to heaven and hell. Yeah, well, The reason bit... Ronnie didn't do the Costa Mesa show was because Ronnie was sick of the bullshit and the lying and the backstabbing. Mm. Giza, Tony knew all about the Costa Mesa show because they'd been having their little drinks and dinners and secret meetings with Sharon, mm. who was offering them at least 10 times what Dio could have offered them. Mm. And um, at their hearts, the Aussie stuff is the real stuff. And that's where the money is. And um, Sharon knew, oh, Ronnie Dio would never in a fucking million years do that show. And if he did, win-win. I mean, yeah, what yeah. a fucking fool, you know. Yeah. So Ronnie predictably says, shove it up your ass. He's being railroaded. He wasn't in, he wasn't in the conversation. It was fate complete. Mm. And he said, well, fuck you. And they went, okay, we'll get Rob Halford to do it. Yeah. It doesn't really fucking matter. Who does it? We mm. can get Adam fucking Ant to do it. <laughs> we're, we're back with Ozzy by the end of the show, my friend, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, trust me, my friend. They, they, these are not... these. I think people think they're the Beatles. They're all friends living in mm. the same house, you know. Ozzy and Iomi hated each other. Mm. And Ozzy won because of Sharon. Right. Um, and uh, if you think any of this has to do with playing fair or music, or you're deluded. Nothing wants to do with this, my friend. Mm. As it always, 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 always is. When they got back together with Ozzy, the deal was, this was when Bill Ward was doing the Ozfest and things and those shows, um, three quarters of everything to Ozzy, one quarter 
of everything else split between the three. Right. Take it or fuck off. Mm. No, like, is that okay? It's like we're being very fucking generous here. And when Bill wouldn't go along with it, because in his mind, that's not the band, that's not four brothers together. Mm. She went, well, fuck off then. We'll get some bloke no one's ever fucking heard of and he can play drums and it won't make the slightest bit of difference. See Stephen Adler. See Izzy Stradley. Yes, yeah, true. See Queen without Freddie. You know, it, it, this is business, my friend. Business, business, business. And as David Arden, Sharon's brother, uh, who who stayed with Don all through the years when Don and Sharon were at war, David, who I worked with later, said, "You always used to say to me, you got to remember Sharon is Don in a skirt." <laughs> And Don was the mob-connected guy that had married, uh, managed Little Richard, Gene Vincent, the Animals. Mm. My friend, my friend, my friend. Don used to take a gun into meetings and put it on the desk mm. without a word. Oh, come on in, Don. Mm. I said, why, why did you do that? He goes, he used to focus their fucking attention. And you could imagine it would. Mm. You could imagine it would. And then David told me they'd have a routine where um, they'd go into the meeting knowing that what they were going to ask for money-wise was so ridiculously over the top, the record company would have no choice but to say no. Yeah. Don would destroy the office, go fucking mad, wave the gun, have his heavies frighten the shit out of everybody, desks upside down, phones pulled out of the wall storm out and David would hang back. David had a, David had a very nice, gentle demeanor. He'd been to public school and stage school and he said, ever so sorry, chaps. They go, he said, look, they basically say, look, I'll make sure Don never comes back and you only ever have to deal with me, but you've got to give me something for Don. Mm. Can't leave here now without at least giving him something. And they'd have gone in, wanted, gone in there wanting a million, ask for 10 and walk out with three. <laughs> and then Don said, I said, what did you do after that? He, go, he goes, I would go to Annabelle's, this very, very royalty guy in London, order a bottle of the finest champagne and feel very, very good about myself. <laughs> now, Sharon learned at her father's knee. Sharon is a daddy's girl, a one million percent. Now, Sharon has ripped me off, fucked me over. Yeah. I'm in a very good club full of loads of people that's happened to. I've also seen her go off at someone. Mm. And it's scary, man. Yeah. It's truly, truly scary. So if you think for one minute she wasn't, as you put it, the puppet master. Mm. And she had an axe to grind with Iomi. She was been looking to bust his fucking face in the dirt for years, and she succeeded. And then when they when they did do the reunion in the 2012 um, press conference, I uh, thought it was a 2011. I can't remember now, but um, with all four original members standing there, and then Bill dipped out again. Is it the same situation? Twenty five percent split between three and seventy for seventy five for Aussie. If they're lucky, if they're lucky. I mean, it just meant that there was more for Aussie. You know, because whoever they got in didn't get anything, got a nice wage. Mm. Just like the drummer in Guns N' Roses now. Just like the uh, mini-me Izzy. 
you know, or the fucking chick on keyboards with the coloured hair, you know, they're all on nice salaries. You yeah. and I would enjoy that kind of money. But it's fuck all when it comes to the take. Right. So it just would have meant uh, more for Aussie. Mm. The other two, uh, you know, happy with what they get. And you think Aussie is still pulling that type of, has that type of weight with Sharon behind them now still, yeah? Like, I, I only, you're, you're certain Iomi doesn't own the name Black Sabbath. It's still Sharon Osbourne. Are you, fucking, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, he owns the name Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, poor Ozzy, he got fucked over by Iomi. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, but like, I mean, he still maintains that to this day, like, that he has ownership over some of it anyway, because he's talking about releasing the Tony Martin albums. Fergal, 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 it doesn't matter what they maintain. <laughs> It's called lying, <laughs> lying. You are fucking lying because the truth is too appalling. Okay, point taken. Point taken. Um, so, where like do do you believe that it, this is really the end of Black Sabbath? They had their final tour uh, finished up in twenty seventeen. No, 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 no. Well, as you said, Costa Mesa was Ozzy's final tour. And- what was that, 94? Mm. How many albums and tours has he done since then, you know? Yeah. Um, don't forget, OzFest was set up by Sharon. And it's her telling me these stories. Mm. Because, as, as she put it, that prick Perry Farrell, uh, when she wanted to get Ozzy on a lot of Palooza, said he wasn't cool enough. Mm. It's like, I'll fucking show you. And OzFest became the most successful touring festival in America in the 90s. And Lollapalooza vanished. Yeah. Um, This is a queen of the damned, my friend, you know, and also funny as fuck. Her mother was Irish. Hello. (laughs) An Irish dancer. Hello. And her father was a Jewish mafia guy called Don Arden. Mm. That wasn't even his real name. His real name is Harry Levy. Um, This is one gothic uh, theatrical family with with really serious, serious blood roots. Wyoming's no fucking match for them, nor nor than any of us, you know. Mm. uh, so I've forgotten what the question was. Do I believe what? That the Black Sabbath oh, oh, no, finished. No, no, of course not. What will happen, though, is because Ozzy really is ill. Mm. Um, I don't see him being able to get back on stage. And that's pretty much the only place you can make money anymore if you're a rock singer. Um, but you've only got to look at his last solo album. You know, he's got uh, Post Malone and mm. Andrew, what's his name? Very talented, co-writing the songs. Everybody, he's kind of turning into Lemmy. You know, long after Lemmy could sell any fucking records or even stand on a stage, every rock star in town wanted to be uh, looked upon uh, to get Lemmy's favour, credibility by association. Lemmy says we're all right, so we're fucking all right, you know? Yeah. Uh, And that's kind of where Austin is. But, I mean, the man is ill. I don't know how long he's got. Uh, it'll be a really terrible day when he goes, but it's got to happen sooner or later. So I don't see Sabbath doing any more shows, Mm. but will there be product? Will there be reality shows? Who fucking knows what the future will bring? But uh, the name Black Sabbath, the franchise Black Sabbath, everything Black Sabbath is owned by Sharon Osbourne and has been for a very 
very long time. And that's why we're still talking about them. Rick Rubin didn't want to do the fucking album because Neil Murray was on the fucking bass. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Uh, Rick Rubin, who's known Sharon forever, um, did it because Sharon makes it real. Sharon's like Doc McGee. You know, these people make it real. Mm. Um, God bless Tony Martin. I think he's got a great voice and uh, he wrote some good stuff. And gave it his all, a genuine, genuine person. Um, but it means nothing yeah. in the music business, particularly America. Uh, and in America, they've never even heard of England. You know, no one gives a fuck what anybody thinks outside of America. Yeah. Um, and Aussie's never been that big in Britain and Europe anyway. It's always been America and Japan and the whole kind of Pacific Rim. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and just lastly, um, obviously that was a, quite a, a hefty book you wrote there um, about uh, about eight years ago. What inspired you to write about Black Sabbath? Was it more the stories, the music, or a combination of both? It's never just music, um, because at the end of the day, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, and most of my life, but when I was a teenager, I mean, not only did I love music, if we were talking about whatever artist we were talking about, if it was someone I loved, I would know more about it than you. And if it was someone you loved, you were the same artist, you would know more about it than me. I mean, that's the nature of, mm. it's like your man with the fan site. You know, he, he he's accumulated way more knowledge than anybody else. And, and that's wonderful um, from a fan's perspective. Um, but as a writer, uh, I, I, I didn't, I'd stopped reading the music press long before I ever wrote for them. I only wrote for them because I need anything but get a proper job, you know. Mm. Um, music papers don't, you can listen to the music yourself. And when you do, you will know if it's any good or whether you like it or you want to invest meaning into it. You don't need anybody to tell you. What you don't know is the story mm. behind the music. And you can be the biggest fan in the world but you're still on the outside with your nose pressed up against the window. Uh, you've only got the records to go on and the shows to go on. And that's a lot. Yeah. But that wasn't what interested me. Um, it's always been what goes on off stage, backstage, what went on before the show, what goes on after the show, the meetings that happen the next morning, mm. um, the double dealing. I mean, the fucking rock business is the wild west, which certainly was back then. Mm. Seriously, people taking guns into meetings, people being beaten up, artists being beaten up. Um, Sharon was tour manager for ELO in the 70s, and she was a wild child. She would go out, she used to say to me, they were just a bunch of boring old fucking men. So what was I going to do on a 60-day tour of North America in bumfuck Idaho on a Tuesday night? She'd go out and party and do what any uh, young, blooded young person would do. And if you were a guy, people would go, what a guy. Mm. And if you were Sharon, they'd go, fucking hell. Mm. I mean, she would destroy hotel rooms. She was always uh, pissing in plant pots and shitting in the lobby. This is a favourite thing of hers. Um, uh, This is the fucking wild, crazy West. And um, I've forgotten what the question was. What was it? Uh, I just asked you what, what inspired you to write the book about Black Sabbath. Uh, but yeah, you, right, uh, an opportunity to tell great stories. Right. 
And it seemed a good opportunity because obviously I'd worked with them a lot. I just turned my fire off because it's getting hot. The same thing that made me want to write about Zeppelin or ACDC or whoever it might be, because those stories haven't been told. Hmm. You know, all the stories about the Beatles and the Stones and Elvis, and they've been told a million times over um, by some really great writers and journalists. But who the fuck's ever done a great book on Black Sabbath? There's been a few by fans, for fans, some of them very commendable, but of no interest whatsoever to me. Hmm. You know, I, I always want to write a book that I'd find interesting. So the music is your excuse to be there. That's your ticket to ride. Yeah. And, of course, you must cover it because without that, you've got nothing. Yeah. As Don, Don Arden coined the phrase, you can't polish a turd. Hmm. You know, that was a Don Arden saying. Um. So first of all, you've got to have something that isn't a turd. And once you've got that, what's the story? What's the real story? And I knew through my own personal experience that Sabbath were, had really, really, really been through some crazy fucking times. Um, and they weren't fucking Morrissey or mm. um, Damon Auburn or some fucking middle-class public school wanker intellectualizing everything. They... As, Quote from Aussie, we were four fucking dummies from Birmingham and we didn't have a fucking clue. I thought, what a great start to a story that is. Yeah. Um, and so to me, it could have been, it was like uh, your man that wrote, uh, uh, was it the, the, the Commitments? Yes, yeah. Roddy Doyle. Roddy Doyle. Roddy Doyle, yeah. It like, yeah, it was like one of those stories. The Sabbath were like the Commitments, except they kept getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And things got weirder and weirder. Yeah. Very good. All right. Okay. Look, that's kind of all I have for you. So appreciate you doing that. Um, my plan is to you. Is that all? That's all, isn't it? Yeah. That's all. <laughs> uh, look, thanks a million. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to probably use this on Friday. And then you said you wanted to use it then. You're, would you have, have yeah. to wait a week then to you put it up yourself? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. You, you have your wicked one with it. Yeah. And then let me have a version and I'll put that up. And um, and and send me a link to your thing, and I'll I'll you know tweet it and all that stuff, yeah. and tell people to listen to it. Sure, yeah. Because I'm not sure about you, but I was pretty. Good. <laughs> I will do. Um, it listen, by, by the way, can I just say, listen, listen, don't don't take. It's not disdain for the fans because I'm a fan. Mm. Okay. With me, it's writers. Yeah. Okay, because I don't get to know them. I mean, I'm in the publishing world. So I know something. I've written 40 books, so I know something. Mm. But I don't know their managers or friends or agents or who they slept with or what drugs they did other than the ones they tell you about. Mm. Um, and I like that because I've learned that, that, that going backstage is the surest way to spoil it. And um, it is not a disdain for the fans. It's the same thing that happens, you know, when all those Guns N' Roses fans keep going on about what a genius Axel is, you know, it's or uh, Malcolm Young. Mm. Oh, what a shame he went. Malcolm Young, motherfucker. He was one of the most evil, obnoxious, but also very touched by genius people you ever met. Mm. Definitely not your friend. Yeah. Definitely not your friend. 
or mine yeah. or Bond's, certainly not John Oates. Mm. So, um, so I'm interested in that. It's the stories. I, it's not a disdain for fans. It's but whenever I hear some uber fan is going to challenge my version of the story, yeah. it's like, oh, fuck off, will you? Let's, be, let's not be boys here. Let's be men. I'm sorry that I have to break the news that Santa Claus isn't real, but he's really fucking not. Spoiler, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Christmas ruined. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. Good stuff. Look, yeah, I really enjoyed that anyway. Uh, it, was, it was very interesting, as always. Um, I will obviously plug your show and Patreon and stuff on my show. So unless you want to say something to yourself here, you can go... You can go and do a little plug there yourself if you want. Uh, no, I'll let you do it. I'll let you. I think if you just keep it simple, like he's a wonderful guy. He's a he's a humanitarian. He he cares. Okay, that would be a work of fiction, though. But yeah, uh, yeah. And and he, I just want to say a big hi to all the Wokahontuses out there, and I just wish them a very plural. New Year. Okay, very good. Right, that's that's great. Um, I will. I'll let you go. I'll let you off. Uh, and I hope you have something lovely planned for the week. <laughs> you fucking love saying that, don't you? No, I fucking know. Just more rivers of shit. Yeah, listen, I was thinking we should start a whiskey. River of shit. <laughs> yes, an Irish whiskey made in Dublin yeah. with a green fucking label and a skull on it. And we'll just call it in brown, river river of shit. I think that. Could, I think yeah, yeah. I can picture that on the top shelf. All right, <laughs> good stuff. Will you have a drop of the river of shit? Shit. <laughs> go on, go on, go on. Brilliant. All right, all right. Look, I, I'll let you go. So thanks again, and yeah. sure, I'll chat to you soon. All right. All right. So listen, thank you very much, and good luck, mate. You do a great job. You really do. Okay. See you later. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Oh, there's the leave button. All right. So that was Mick Wall. Again, thanks to Mick for participating in the arc. I really appreciate it. It was so enjoyable to put his comments alongside those comments of other people because in some cases he strongly disagreed with other people. And in general, it was just it was just a bizarre for me to be including comments from Mick Wall in, in a podcast thing that I was doing that was just a little germ of an idea back in February 2021. And little did I know. By November, I'd be interviewing Mick Wall, um, somebody whose is stuff I've been reading since I was, what, uh, 16, 15 years old. So, yeah, it was it was great to be able to feature him in an episode like that and also great to be able to present to you the full interview. Um, and that's going to do it for full interviews for Arc Sabbath. Maybe down the road I'll publish some more material that I didn't use for the episodes as there was a lot of information and comments and stuff included in those interviews that never aired because obviously you cannot air 20 hours of audio across, you know, however many episodes, 13 I think, but uh, and with all the narration and the various bits in between, it's, it, wasn't, it just wasn't possible to include everything everybody said, of course. So yeah, maybe down the line I will do something with some other pieces of audio I have from that series. But uh, that's also going to do it for 2021. And what a year it was. I started the year with my Flat Earth episode documenting the story about John Schaefer from my start storming the Capitol building and uh, the arrests that would follow and all of the information around that, which was fascinating to follow at the time. 
There's been some updates on that recently, actually. John Schaefer appears to have posted his first social media post uh, on Instagram advertising the band's merchandise that's available. This is his first interaction on, on social media since the original arrest. He's also collaborated with the government officials and police and has been offered to enter into the witness protection program, should he wish. He's also reached a plea deal as well with the uh, police too. So very interesting developments on that one. Um, For somebody who was so staunchly uh, anti-everything and was one of the people at the forefront of the storming of the Capitol building, to then go and reach a plea bargain uh, to be offered witness protection and to be essentially in cahoots with the law enforcement officers um it was just such a bizarre story um but anyway yeah that's 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 where i started the year back on the uh 15th of january that was my first episode of 2021 i went on to do an interview with blaze bailey later on uh again somebody i've been listening to my entire life almost as surreal as mick wall um i did an interview with anderson tiago from the new wave of traditional heavy metal full albums website or youtube channel sorry I actually met Anderson in person at Keep It True Rising back in November. It was great to actually say hello to him and chat to him and, and, you know, see somebody who I'd only seen previously on a Zoom video actually in person. And he's a lovely chap as well. So it was great to meet up with Anderson. I continued on the year. I did episodes on power metal. I did some general episodes where it was just me speaking for a long time. I did one Ireland Rocks, Earworms and Earnestness. And then in March, I started Arc Sabbath. I started with episode 0.5, where I gave a brief introduction to some of the participants of the Arc. Uh, then episode 0.75, again, I've discussed this regrettable numbering system on previous episodes. But yeah, that's the way I went with that. Again, just an introduction. And then it was continuing on the Arc, Arc Sabbath episodes uh, 2, 2.5, 3, 4, etc., etc. I decided to break it up a bit in the summer. I spoke to Kyle McNeil from Seven Sisters for the second time. I spoke to Marcus Grosskopf from Halloween. I spoke to Jarvis Leatherby in person in my apartment. Completely new territory for me. I went back to Arc Sabbath, episodes 5, 6, 7, 8. Uh, I spoke to Mick Wall then in September. I did a three-part review series of the new Iron Maiden album, Senjutsu, with Andrew DeBroy. I went back to the Ark, uh, did an interview with the guys from Eliminator. Went back to the Ark again, spoke to Wayne Jackson, and now here we are. The final two episodes, my last one, obviously, the interview with Joe Sigler. And this one, the interview with Mick Wall. And that's going to cap off 2021. If you had told me this time last year that I would be speaking to Mick Wall, I'd be speaking to Blaze Bailey... I probably wouldn't have believed you. So it's very interesting to me how things can progress. And simply asking people to do something, as I've said many times, often results in a yes. So don't be afraid. If you're considering doing it yourself, just do it, as Nike would tell you to do. And I'm adopting that slogan, apparently, for myself here. But yeah, that's it for 2021. I have interesting ideas for 2022. There are a couple of things in the pipeline. But really, for the majority of the year, I don't know what I'm going to be doing on Feckin' Metal. I don't really have a solid plan. Kind of like this year. But this year worked out pretty well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. For those people who I've interviewed, thank you for giving me your time. And thank you for being a willing participant in a Zoom call interview for a podcast from somebody you probably didn't know before. So, I've always appreciated that. And I'll always mention my appreciation for people who give me time out of their day to do an interview. So, it's always very well appreciated too. It's fucking redundant now saying that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. So look, happy new year. It's New Year's Eve. Go off and enjoy yourself. Maybe you're not listening to this on New Year's Eve. You're listening to it some other time. Um, but 
I hope you had a great 2021. I certainly did. And I wish you all the best for 2022. I will be back to doing normal episodes, whatever they might be, on the 7th of January. So I will speak to you then.